Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. What a great time of worship this morning. We're continuing our, our way through the, through the book of Romans, and so I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, again looking at verses 21 to 26, and we're again today continuing in uh, our understanding of the word propitiation. Again, like Dora the Explorer, I'm going to say the word and ask you to repeat it. Can you say propitiation? That's right. We're learning doctrine here at First Baptist Church, and uh, there's no greater doctrine than what Jesus does for us on the cross, and there's no better word to capture that doctrine than this word here, propitiation. So I'm going to read it for you. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 23. I'd also ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. So tear off a strip from your bulletin. And uh, it's not the Gospel of John, it's 1 John chapter 4. Make your way to 1 John, and, uh, and when you get to chapter 4, just tuck that uh, little book, bookmark in there, and uh, we'll be coming to that a little later on in the, in the worship service this morning. But uh, we're trying to understand what this word propitiation means, what it means. And so we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 23, and as is our custom, we'll read the text, and then we'll pause and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and then we will get to work. And so it says in Romans three twenty three and following, all have sinned, all, all of us, every single one of you in this room, including me, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is a major problem. Verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness of God because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you please bow with me for prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that we would understand the deep, deep, deep power of what is happening on the cross. Lord, help us to see this morning that it is not only the record of failures against us, which you have wiped out, but so much more. You have caused our hearts to come alive. You have caused us to be born again. You have shown us what love is, and you have placed love into the hearts of your people. Father, if there are any here this morning who still conceive of religion merely as a means of getting right with God or merely as a means of getting to heaven when they die, if there are any here this morning who don't really see the point of religion, perhaps they are unbelievers, perhaps they are going through life and they sense something of the coldness that grips their hearts, the deadness with which they approach their relationships and their family members. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would open their eyes to see that they were created for love and that they can only have that in its depth and in its richness in your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. 
Amen. How do you know if someone loves you? Is it that first time you kiss? There have been lots of boys and girls that have kissed over the years, and they quickly went on to forget about each other. I've been told a story by one of my dear friends. She had two friends dating in high school, and uh, they were holding hands. And uh, the one, the, the girl in particular, let go of the boy's hand, and he was a little bit crushed. And he said, oh, won't you hold my hand? And she responded, and she said, I'd rather not, because holding your hand, this is a direct quote, holding your hand feels like acid burning my skin. Whew, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Needless to say, that relationship did not survive. So how do you know when you love someone? Is it when you kiss? Is it when you hold hands? Our culture is awash in expressions of love that amount to physical demonstrations, but our culture prioritizes physical gratification divorced from the intrinsic meaning of what love is. I tell you that there is something deep and profound in love, but it begs the question then, how do we know what that is and how do we know when we have love for another person and perhaps even more significantly as we talk to young people in university and young single adults, the question they are often asking is, how do I know when someone loves me? And of course, the answer to this question, I guess the most powerful, most obvious way that we know when someone loves us is when we enter into marriage together. Now, just stop and think about it for a second. Your mom and your dad, your brothers, your sisters, they have to love you. They don't have a choice in it. You're a part of the family. That's how it goes. Your friends, they can go home at the end of the day. They don't have to be there with you at night. They can love you from a distance. But your spouse, she is not going home at the end of the day. And there were not just two options available to her, marry you or marry some other person, and, well, you're the best I can find, so I guess I'll marry you. Those were not the two options available. There was a third option. I could just be single the rest of my life. But she chose you. And the same is true for husbands. They chose, rather than being single or marrying someone else, they chose their wife. And that's really the beauty of love. We all want it, even though when we're really honest with ourselves, deep down, we know we don't deserve it. But even though we know we don't deserve it, we still really want it anyway. The power of love is that it goes two ways. It's the love you have for another person, and of course, the fact that you forsake all to choose them, and that they choose you right back. But what if they don't choose you back? I'm sure you've heard the expression, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. Unrequited love stings. I mean, from the earliest time that we started thinking about love, if you recall that old country western song in which the boy passed a note to Billie Jean, I think was her name, I can't quite remember now, and he said, do you love me? Check yes or no. And then the note came back, and of course, there was a giant laughing face on it and a big X over the no box. 
And you realize in that moment, she doesn't love me, and you were angry for it. We want to be loved back. So we come, of course, to God. In all of these stories of love, there are really echoes of the love that God has for his creation, for you and me in particular, as those formed and fashioned in the image of God. And the real sting of this love story is that God loved us, but we did not love him back. In fact, God speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Hosea makes a rather profound and stunning comparison. It is, I think, perhaps the best picture given to us in the Old Testament of God's patient, reconciling love, his forgiving love that continues to pursue us even though we've been completely faithless to him. God tells the prophet Hosea to go out and to choose a wife who is a prostitute. Her name is Gomer, and shortly after their marriage, Hosea's wife, Gomer, quickly returns to prostitution. I mean, not even long after their wedding day. She goes back to prostitution, and this, God says, is what his love for his people looks like, and it's what it feels like. God is trying to tell us that he loves us, but that we don't love him back. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God keeps making these promises I will rescue you. I will save you. I will redeem you. And we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and we keep saying over and over again, yes, God dies on the cross, and it cancels the record of sins against us. But is that enough? If God wipes the slate clean such that we have never done anything wrong against him, is it enough for God just to have people who he can declare innocent, yet who still Do not love him back. And I tell you today, it's not sufficient. The cross must do more. Propitiation must mean more. It does not mean less than the canceling of our sins. It does not mean less than justice satisfied. But it must mean more. More And how do I know this? Because of the statement that God makes through this prophet Hosea who took a prostitute to be his wife. In Hosea chapter 2, the Lord speaking through Hosea says, In that day, declares the Lord, my people will call me my husband. And no longer will they call me Baal. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for my people a covenant on that day. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and all war from the land, and I will make you to lie down in safety. He makes this amazing promise. He says, in that day, I will betroth you to myself forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, number one. And we've seen that working our way here through Romans chapter 3. God cancels the legal demands of the law against us by satisfying them in sending forth his son Jesus to pay the debt that we owe. But that's not all that God says through the prophet Hosea. He says, I will betroth you to me 
in righteousness, number one. And he also says, I will betroth you to me, number two, in steadfast love. I will betroth you to me, he says, in faithfulness. In the context of a woman that's pursuing other men as a career for the sake of prostitution, when God says, I will cause my people to be betrothed to me in faithfulness, what he is saying through the prophet Hosea is this. Not only will I cancel the legal demands against you, but you will love me. You will be true to me. Isn't that great news? The love that God calls for in the cross, he enables what we ourselves are incapable of rendering. And Paul talks about it right here in Romans chapter 3. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, note that, the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now note that word. We've been trying to underline that word. Propitiation. He says, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, pastor, I see the words law and I see the words righteousness. And I I even see just and justification there in verse 26. And for sure, you've highlighted the word propitiation. But pastor Josh, one, one little question there. Uh, I I didn't see the word love anywhere in this passage. Well, it's there. You say, how is it there? Go back to verse 21. It says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You're like, okay, I see law, still not seeing the word love. Let's step back and ask ourselves the question, what is the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus was asked this very question. And indeed, Jesus answered the question, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses, writing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, laying out all the promises, the blessings, as well as the curses, promises for fulfilling the law, as well as curses for breaking the law, Moses touches on this great commandment. And in verses 1 to 2, Moses says in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. So here is the law, Moses says, here's what you got to do. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he's going to reiterate all the various laws, all the various regulations that Israel is to follow. But he starts off, he says, here's the law, here's what God has commanded. He says all of that. And then just a few verses later in verse four, after the preamble, we should call it the introduction to this law, he he gives the Shema. This is the first commandment. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we hear that, and because we've been particularly attentive in this church to ensure that our kids 
are raised in the knowledge of God, we almost quickly jump down to that part in the Shema in which it says you got to take the Lord's commandments and you got to bind them up on your doorpost and you got to put them as a frontlet between your eyes and you got to talk about them when you rise up and when you lay down, blah, blah, blah. And, and you got to teach it to your children when they ask you. And we emphasize that over and over and over again. But when Moses starts giving the law, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the first thing he says, law number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The command of God, the law of God starts like this. The first law in keeping God's law, the first responsibility in obeying the law of God is first to love him with all that you are. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he says, the righteousness of God has been revealed, it's been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, we've already seen, number one, in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first commandment that Moses gives is that we have to love God with all our hearts, but then, centuries later, this prophet Hosea comes along, and God says through the prophet Hosea, this is actually what you're like. You are faithless. You are like a prostitute. You do not love me. And so when Paul quotes law and prophets, what he is saying is that there is a righteousness which is given to us apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Is God simply satisfied with canceling the legal demands against us? No, he is not. There is so much more that he desires from a relationship with us At the pinnacle of this is that he would have a people, you and me, having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, his desire is he would have a people who would love him. And he commands for us to have that love. In the person of Jesus, we have someone who propitiates. We have someone who propitiates. And as we defined it last time, that's to say that both the wrath of God has been appeased, but it isn't enough to simply say that the wrath of God is appeased. It says that God's favor has been entreated. It is not simply a matter of God's anger at our rebellion against the law. It is more than this. It must involve loving God. You look at any marriage relationship in which either the husband or the wife enters into that relationship and they don't really desire to have a friendship or a love for their spouse. They're just simply going to go through the motions, go to work, pay the bills, perform my duties. And you ask the other partner in that relationship, is it enough for you simply that you have a mate who will just perform the obligatory responsibilities of the relationship? And I tell you now, every one of us would say, no, it's not enough. I want my spouse to love me. Relationships have ended quickly when it was understood that there was not a love, that it was purely a business sort of arrangement. Because it's not enough. God knows we are fallen and we are broken. He can cancel the legal debt against us, but for him to truly have favor for us, we would need to love him as he has loved us. There are two passages in which it is clear that Jesus is 
commanding, not asking nicely, not offering it as a suggestion, but commanding us to love him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus teaching about what it is like to have a relationship with God says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. And then again, in John chapter 8, and verse 42, Jesus is speaking to the, the Pharisees and the religious establishment. And he says, if God were your father, they, they're having this back and forth. They're having this argument. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. So he says, number one, if you don't love me more than your own son or your own daughter, you are not worthy of me. And number two, if God really were your father, then you would look at me and you would love me. That's what he's saying here. I recall reading a book in university many years ago in which it was a Christian theologian and and he was writing that love cannot be a feeling as we understand it. You know, when you look at someone, you get those little tinglys, and you're like, oh, I love that person. And this person was saying love can't be a feeling because in the scriptures, love is commanded. And he went on to conclude you can't command emotions. You can't command feelings. In other words, love must simply be an act of the will or a deed of the body, but it must be something that is done without involving the emotions or the affections. But the problem with this argument, church, is that the premise is false. Jesus does command the feelings. He commands us to have love. He demands that our emotions be one way and not the other. He demands, for example, that we rejoice in certain circumstances. You can find this in Matthew chapter 5. He also demands that we fear the right person, that we don't fear the world, but that we fear God. He says this in Luke chapter 12. He commands that we not feel shame or embarrassment regarding Christ in Luke chapter 9. And he also says that we are commanded to forgive each other from the heart. If a feeling is proper to have then Jesus absolutely can demand that we have it. And he does so all over the place in the scriptures. So let's make sure then that we understand what we're talking about when we're talking about love. Jesus' demand that we love him may involve more than just deep feelings of admiration and tenderness for his attributes Love might involve more than just simply enjoying the company of his friendship and his fellowship. It might mean more than the attraction to his presence, but it does not mean less. It does not mean less. There are at least two things that Jesus said that show this. He said, for example, that our love for him must exceed the love that we have for mother or father or son and daughter. He says, whoever loves father or or mother more than me isn't worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. That from Matthew chapter 10. The love that we have in those relationships that binds us to those individuals is not mere willpower. My daughter went away to a youth event on Friday night, and she spent the night at a friend's house on Saturday night, and I didn't see her again until Saturday afternoon. Now, when she came through the door... I didn't sit there and say to myself, well, my daughter is home and I should go tell her I love her because it's my duty. And then I put on a brave stoic face and I dutifully walked to the door and said, 
Hello, daughter. <laughs> Welcome. That's a rip. And if that was my daughter's experience of my love for her, she would feel greatly impoverished that there is something missing from her life. I love my children, all three of them. I am happy to see them. When they come home, I'm like, hey, did you obey? Did you mind? But then I'm like, hey, you know, it's great. Because of course they would do a great job, right, Chloe? Right? I love my kids. I love them. Loving Jesus, he says, if you're going to love me, it has to be more than father and mother, son and daughter. The love that binds us to those relationships is not mere willpower. It is deep, genuine affection. We like each other. We love each other. We want to be together. Jesus says that the love that we must have for him is not less than that. It is not less than that. It is more. But there's another piece of evidence here. Again, love for Jesus may involve actions and emotions both together, but it must absolutely include the emotions. The reason I say that is because the other piece of evidence that Jesus requires our love is because he says specifically it has to be more than just good deeds. The objection is sometimes raised. Loving God means simply that you just do what the Bible tells you to do. But again, that just doesn't satisfy. It's not, it's not sufficient. And Jesus says so. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And sometimes people use that very passage of scripture to say that loving Jesus is simply a matter of keeping his commandments. But that's not what the text says. Not at all. It says that keeping Jesus' commandments will come from our love for him, not as an expression to show him that we really love him, even though we feel cold and dead and lifeless inside when we think of him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He does not separate actions from feeling. He does distinguish them, but he doesn't separate them. First, he is teaching. First, we love him. And then because of that love for him, overflowing from that love for him, then we go on to do what he asks us to do, what he commands us to do. Love is not synonymous with commandment keeping. If love can truly be defined down as nothing more than keeping the rules and the regulations, then the best lovers of God that ever were were the Pharisees. And it was precisely them who were the recipient of his deepest criticism. Love for God is not a matter of keeping the rules. Now, love for God involves way more than that. It involves that affection that we all know intrinsically is love, and it is from that love of God from which we are then empowered to obey. That's what Jesus is teaching. So the love that Jesus demands from us is something that is very deep, very strong, It's not less than that love and that desire that we feel for the closest of family members. In fact, it's got to be greater than that. It's got to be more than that. So then Jesus, recognizing that we're broken and fallen, and that we don't love as we ought to, Jesus, and here's the good news of propitiation, Jesus enables what he commands in us. 
you're here this morning, you're like, I know I don't love God as I ought to. Good news. We have one who propitiates for us. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. The fact that I may be too corrupt to experience the emotions that I ought to have does not change my duty or my responsibility before God to have those emotions. If Jesus commands that I have certain emotions, then I ought to be having those emotions. My moral inability to produce those emotions for God does not remove my guilt. It only serves to show the depth of my corruption. It makes me desperate for a new heart. It makes me desperate for a new heart, which only Jesus can give. In other words, the reason Jesus says that you don't love me, he, he makes this statement in John eight forty two. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. And so to flip that around, Jesus is saying that the reason you don't love him is that you're not a part of the family of God. More specifically, he's saying you don't have the family nature, or we might call it the family spirit. Now look at what John says in 1 John chapter 4. Go to verse 7. The Apostle John, writing to Christians, says, Beloved, beloved, just notice that first word, beloved, loved by God, those of you who are loved by God. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus comes to create new life in us. You are here this morning and you sense a deadness and a coldness in your heart. You sense yourself drifting away from those who are close to you. You look at your children, you look at your husband, you look at your spouse, and you know deep down, I, I don't have the love for them that I ought to have. If this is you, the solution is not to try to dig down deeper and try to gin something up to make something there. The solution is to look to Christ. The solution is to understand the love of God and to have love first for God. And from that, you'll have love for others. John says here, in, he, says, he says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God shows us his love. In that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, there you go. You see that word propitiation? God shows us love in the propitiating work of Christ. Beloved, look at what John says here. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, there's the moral responsibility. We ought to love because God first loved us. 
Jesus propitiates and because we have our sins propitiated for, because the favor of God has been entreated, which goes so much further and higher and beyond simply having the legal record canceled. He says, because we have the propitiation of Christ, we ought to be loving each other. Well, how does that work? He goes on. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, that still doesn't give me much explanation. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and that he in us because he has given us of his spirit. A couple of things I just want to draw to your attention this morning as we look at this passage. Number one, it is directly connected to Romans 3 by use of the word propitiation. This word does not occur very many times throughout the scripture, so anytime you see it pop up, you want to pay attention to it because this is the depth of the cross, God sending his son Jesus to propitiate for our sins. So to understand what Jesus is doing for us on the cross, to understand why God the Father sent Christ forward, where every time we see this word, propitiation, we need to pay attention. And in this passage, we see that propitiation is directly connected to the demand that we love as God has loved us. Propitiation is the revealing of the fullness of God's love. And from that, we are then commanded to love. And yet the only thing that we have here is this statement in verse 13, which says, when we abide in Christ... We have been given his spirit. Going back to what Jesus says in John, the gospel of John, he says, if you love the father, you would love me. He's, uh, he, he's implicating there that there's a family nature, this spirit that we have been given as a result of our faith in Christ. And one of the things that that spirit does is it makes us a people of love. The gospel, then, is not simply about canceling the demands of the law by satisfying the requirement of justice in the sending forth of Jesus. The gospel includes that and goes above that to say we are born again when we trust in Christ. We're given a new spirit which does many things, and the greatest of these things is it compels us, it causes us to then have something in us which we didn't have before. It makes us people of love. Now, this is actually the most astounding part of the good news. This is the best part of the cross. Not only does God forgive me, but he leads me to loving him. Progressive scholars and liberals object. They say, you know, when I think of the cross, when I think of Jesus going to the cross and bearing the penalty of sins, it sounds to me like some form of cosmic, divine child abuse. And they mock and they belittle Christianity by looking at what Jesus did on the cross and saying, well, God the Father sent him forward just to kill him. And and God the Father, he must be like some cold-hearted, you know, implacable heavenly deity that won't have anything to do with people until he coldly sits back and waits for somehow this price to be paid. It must be like child abuse being a Christian. This is the objection, that God sent his son into the world simply to be executed for our sins, simply to pay the penalty of our transgressions and nothing more. When progressives challenge the doctrine of the cross in this way, they are really blaspheming and slandering the character of God. What a degraded view of God it is, the modern liberal exclaims. 
when God is represented as being alienated from us and as waiting coldly until some price is paid before he will begrudgingly grant his salvation. This is how they blaspheme him. They go on to claim that in reality, God should be more willing to forgive sin than we are willing to be forgiven if he's really as great as the Christians claim. They go on to say that reconciliation, therefore, can have to do only with a man's willingness to be forgiven, and it starts with him first being willing to forgive himself. So then the gospel is turned from something beautiful into something weird and therapeutic and inward-focused and narcissistic. The conclusion is, it all depends on us. God, if he's really as great as that, he should be willing to receive us at any time we choose. Well, anytime I've ever gotten into a fight with my wife, I never approached reconciliation with the attitude of, she should just be willing to have me back at any time I decide it's right. Does that sound like love? Consider all the religions of the world. Take Islam. What does it mean to get right with Allah? The recommended prescription is you pray five times a day, you make pilgrimages to Mecca and Medina, you don't ever sin, you don't ever do anything wrong, and then the scales, at the end of the day, when they're weighed, your scale turns up good, not bad. And of course, anybody that is at least a minimal degree of honest with themselves knows my scale's not turning up good. So that's a great thing in all this case because he has a skip straight to the front of the line prescription for you. Simply go out and kill a bunch of infidels in an act of jihad and martyrdom and you get to go straight to the front of the line. And what is heaven, pray tell? Is it a place in Islam where we all get to sit around with Allah enjoying his company? No, they say, no. God isn't like that. You don't even really have to deal with Allah when you get to heaven in Islam. You're given 76 virgins. They take love and they separate romance from sexual gratification. And they emphasize the perversion of sexual gratification. And they claim that that is heaven. The progressives say there should be some way that God can forgive us without sending his son to the cross to die for us. But here's the response. It doesn't matter what religion you look at. It doesn't matter what other alternative possibility we might consider, whether it's Buddhism, which emphasizes this cold detachment from love and pleasure and anything good and beautiful in the world, or whether we go to something extreme like Islam, which says, you know what? You're just hopeless unless you kill yourself. And here's the good news. Once you do that, you never have to see this Allah character again. You get to just have sexual gratification. What in the world would the alternatives be? We find it deficient because we want to be loved. We want to know that the God of the universe isn't merely tolerating us that the God of the universe isn't really chiding us for having these whacked out emotions, which according to Buddhism, we shouldn't have in the first place. Jesus makes sense of it all. Christianity is the only thing that will answer. The objection is, couldn't God have found some other way to forgive us and just let bygones be bygones? If God's desire was to have nothing further to do with us, then yes, there is another way for God to deal with 
with our sins, and that is simply to destroy us and send us to hell forever. Jesus is addressing our sin, but when he sends his son forward, and when Christ comes to us voluntarily, willing the same as his father, he comes to love us and to propitiate for us in such a way that when we look at the cross and when we see the heart of God in Christ, we love him back. Not, of course, to the depths or the degree to which he loves us, but there is a genuine love that is born there. Jesus talks about this on the cross. He meets with his fellow Nicodemus late at night. And Nicodemus is like, hey, what do I got to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, you got to be born of the water and you got to be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, who's supposed to be the teacher of Israel, completely misses that reference to the Old Testament prophet of Ezekiel. And he says, born again? What? Like, how does a person get born again? Do I have to go a second time into my mother's womb? And of course, Jesus is shocked. He's like, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And then he makes this really profound statement. He says in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's an interesting reference there's this account in the Old Testament in which Moses, there's a, there's a series of vipers that God sends into the camp. Israel, as per usual, has sinned against God, and now he's punishing them. He sends these snakes into the camp that are biting people, they're having venom, they're dying. And, uh, and uh, God says to Moses, fashion a serpent and put it on a pole, a golden serpent, and lift it up, and whoever would look to it will be healed. And Jesus makes this statement, the Son of Man... When he is lifted up, he will heal because all who believe in him will have eternal life. But he goes on. The day before he is to be crucified, he talks about his hour having arrived. And in John chapter 12, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And he makes that statement again about being lifted up. And he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In other words, when we look to the cross, we see there absolutely the atoning work of Christ satisfying the requirements of the law. But Jesus conceived of his work on the cross as being something greater than just that. He says, when people look to me, they will be drawn in. When we look to Christ, when we see the cross, we are moved to worship. We are moved to give glory to God. We are moved to love. This is done because of the gift of the Spirit. 
how God through the Holy Spirit enables us to love Jesus more than we love our closest friends or even our moms or our dads. It's a great mystery, but it is not completely obscured. Hear me carefully this morning. It's a mystery how God works this change in our hearts. It's a mystery, but it's not completely obscured from our eyes. Once upon a time, there was a very strict Pharisee, a rule keeper, who threw a dinner for Jesus. He had very little love for Christ, but he invited him to dinner. And while they were reclining at the table for dinner, having dinner together, there was a prostitute who walked in. She took a flask of very expensive ointment, and she broke it, and she mingled the ointment with her tears. And she took her hair, and she began to wipe the feet of Christ. The Pharisee saw this action taking place, and he was infuriated, indignant, And so Jesus asked a question of the Pharisee. If a moneylender forgives two debtors, one who owed him $5,000 and the other 50, which would love him more? The Pharisee answered correctly. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus agreed and said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears, and she has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time that I came in. But since I have arrived, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And then Jesus made this stunning conclusion. She loved much. She loved Jesus greatly. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. We started off today by asking the question, how can we know that we are loved? When we look to the cross, we see a Father in heaven who will pay any price to redeem us from our sins. But more than that, we see a father in heaven who has chosen an instrument, a torture stake, precisely because of how it will reveal and magnify his heart of love. And through the mysterious supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, will draw forth love in our hearts for God. Christians don't obey because we ought to. Christians love We love God, and because of that love, which he has borne in our hearts, we obey. How do we know that God loves us? Because we know love in the cross. We know God loves us when he has called us into love for his son. The wrong question is not, does God love me? The right question, the question you should be asking, rather, Do you love God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, every day we look to the cross. So many different themes, so many different purposes. 
but all oriented towards one surpassing great and glorifying goal, that we would be your children, that we would know you as our Father. Lord, this world looks for all manner of ways in which they can criticize you and criticize the cross and criticize the nature of what you're doing there, but there are no alternatives. And when we see the beauty of who you are in sending your son to die for us, it is truly spectacular and magnificent. Heavenly Father, you could not have done it any greater or any better. This is the best. Your son, Jesus, is the worthiest and the sacrifice upon the cross. It reveals a love that is deeper than anything the philosophers could have speculated about, more beautiful than anything Shakespeare could have ever written about. And it is truer to me and to those who love you. It is truer than the love of anyone else we have ever known. God, help us to see your love and help us to walk in it. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.